So this morning's message, I'm gonna call a tale of two churches, okay? Paul is ministering to them about the same time. So what has happened, what we see in the book of Acts, is Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica. And they're there for about two or three months, not a long time, but as the Lord is moving and people are getting born again and just things are really happening there for the sake of the kingdom of God, what happens is the Jewish leaders are getting jealous. Revival is happening. Now, Thessalonica is a major, major city of commerce, okay? It is a major seaport. It is also on the Ignatian Way, and that's the road that went from Rome to the Orient. And so commerce was coming in by sea. It was going through by land. It was just a happening place. About 200,000 people were in Thessalonica at that time, and it was a major metropolis, okay? So Corinth also a major, major city. It was huge. And so we're going to see very similar size cities with very new churches, with very different relationships with the Lord and with each other. So Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica. The Jewish leaders are getting jealous about what's going on. And so, par for the course, they begin to persecute the believers and Paul. And Paul has to leave and go to Berea. The Jews in Berea, Paul says, were more noble-minded. Actually, Luke tells us in Acts, they were more noble-minded because instead of just resisting or accepting what Paul was teaching, they were listening to what Paul was saying, and then they were they were listening to what Paul was teaching, and then what they were doing was going back home and sitting down and getting into the Word of God and seeing if what Paul was teaching was true. And that's the way we're supposed to be. But as that church is starting to blossom, then the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica, they go to Berea and start causing problems there. And Paul has to go on to Athens and then from Athens to Corinth, okay? So when we look at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul is in Corinth, okay? And he's been there for a year and a half, all right? So he's ministering there a year and a half. He's ministered in Thessalonica two or three months. But when we look at the two churches and the letters that are written to them, the thing about the church in Thessalonica is it's a strong church. It's a loving church. Now, it's got some issues and some misunderstandings of Scripture that Paul deals with. The Corinthian church, on the other hand, we're very familiar with. They were messed up. And we'll see why they were so messed up. So here's Paul in Corinth writing to the church in Thessalonica. Two letters written within a few months of each other to address some key issues, okay? So chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul begins, and I want us to start in verse 2 
and we're just going to look at Paul's heart, all right? We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Brand new baby church, okay? But we already see that they're working in the things of the Lord and they're loving people and they're, they're growing and they're maturing, even though it's just been a little bit of time. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, that whole region of Macedonia. So we know that the Jewish leaders uh, made things really difficult for the church there and for Paul there, and Paul had to leave. Um, but what we'll see is the kind of persecution that the church was receiving in Thessalonica was very similar to what the Jewish believers were experiencing in Israel, all right? They were being ostracized by their families. They were losing their jobs. They were having a difficult, difficult time. And so Paul alludes to that. He says, hey, you're going through the exact same things that your brothers and sisters are in Jerusalem and in Judea, and it's tough. So here they are. They're, they're in all of this tribulation, but they have the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is moving in their midst, and they are blessed, and they're growing, and there's this joy in the midst of the affliction, Okay. So if we go down to verse 14, he says, For you, brothers, this is what I was referring to a moment ago, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And when it's speaking of the Jews, it's very much the Jewish leaders, but the Jewish families and all, there were those issues, and I talked about it last week. If you were a Jew and you believed in Jesus Christ, you were counted as dead. You were totally shut off from your family. You lost income, all sorts of things, okay? So they're going through this, and if we go down to, and that was chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, again, we look at the heart that Paul had for them, he says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. So this is what Paul's saying. They get out of, they get out of, of Thessalonica, but their heart is for the Thessalonians and they're concerned and they've only been there a couple of months or so. And Paul says to Timothy, you know what? Why don't you get back to Thessalonica and pour into them? They are having a hard time 
And we want to make sure that they don't lose heart and that they're strengthened and built up in their walk with the Lord. So Timothy goes back to pour into these, these believers in this very, very young church. So this is the kind of thing that's going on. And in chapter uh, 3, verse 11, there's a prayer and a blessing from Paul. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. We want to come back to be with you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Okay, one thing we find out about the church of Thessalonica is it was a loving church. They looked out for each other. And one of the key elements for that is because of the persecution that they were going under. The things that they were dealing with. You see, when you have a church that's persecuted and in tribulation, the fluff and everything goes away. It's not important, okay? You're not going to have people arguing about the color of the carpet because, you know what? We could be arrested, tortured, or killed. So that's a little more important than the color of the carpet, okay? They don't argue about what version of the Bible that they use or what denomination they belong to. It's like, we're Christians, we're in the thick of it, we're brothers and sisters. And so there's this tight-knit bond with the believers. When, when I was in the Soviet Union, back when it was the Soviet Union, and I got to meet some people in the underground church, it was really cool. And you've heard me say it before, I thought we were going to be blessing them, they're blessing us. We thought we were spiritually strong. And not in an arrogant way, we're just like, oh, well, you know, we have so much to give and we're going to go bless. And you're like, man, these folks are solid. They may only have a page of scripture or one Bible amongst them, but they are solid. They're walking it. They're tight. And it was amazing to see. And, and I remember when I was going back in after the Iron Curtain had come down. And one of the concerns that people had was that now that the Iron Curtain had come down and you could practice Christianity openly, was that all the junk from the West, the false doctrines and all of that garbage was going to come in and it was going to impact the body of Christ there. And it did. And it did. The church in China prays for the church of America because we're so distracted by things that don't matter and we're weak. How's that? You know, pray for China. Yes, but they're praying for us. When you're in persecution, when you're in tribulation, it has a tendency to build up the body of Christ and make it stronger. I'll mention something that Alexander McLaren talks about in just a moment concerning this. But here they are caring for each other, looking out for each other. And so in chapter 4, Paul wants to address some life issues, how they conduct themselves in the midst of all this uh, turmoil and persecution that they're facing. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, 
We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, get this, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You're doing a great job. Just keep it up. Keep up the good work. Keep that walk going. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in, in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and aspire, get this, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Thessalonica was a haven for immorality okay that was greek culture that was roman culture anything pretty much went as far as immorality and idolatry were concerned and it was a part of religious life okay we see this especially when paul is in ephesus and there's the riot because of the uh people who are coming to christ and the people who are making the idols to aphrodite who was the goddess of sex and pleasure. Well, guess what? People aren't buying the idols anymore. They're actually turning away from those things and they're burning their books on witchcraft and all of that. And they're going, hey, we're going to lose our income here. This isn't working. Because religion and immorality were hand in hand. We're going to see this in Corinth, okay? So Paul's telling them, look, you need to know that God's will for you is your sanctification, to be set apart. We don't live like the world. We don't act like the world. We're not to think like the world. We're to think and live as Christ. This is what it means to be sanctified. And there's a blur today in America to where it's really hard to separate the Christian from the non-Christian in, in a lot of ways. The morality is changing. The ideas are changing. There's a lack of biblical understanding, a lack of biblical knowledge, and a lack of biblical application. And as we don't follow the word of God, we're going to be more like the world. We're going to be conformed into the image of this world, which Paul warns us against. So he's saying, this is what God's will is for you. Being different, walking in the ways of God. And part of this, he says, keep on loving. And 
concerning life in verse 11, he says, aspire to live quietly, okay? Thessalonica was a hopping metropolis. Think L.A., think, you know, London, Chicago, New York. It was hopping, fast-paced life. And Paul says, live quietly, restfully. Don't get caught up in the hustle and bustle of this life. And we do that, don't we? We get so busy. We're running around. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're trying to keep up with the Bills. We're trying to keep up with this. We're trying to keep up with that. Rather than just a simple, quiet life. You know, do we really need the next iPhone 15? What makes it so much better than the iPhone 14 that you had to have because it was better than the iPhone 13? Now, I'm not dissing having stuff, okay? But you watch our society, oh, I have to have the next tablet. I have to have the next computer. I have to have the next phone. I have to have the next car. Why is this car better than the car that you have? Well, it's a newer car, but your car works just fine. And there's just this push to get more and have more, you know? There's the saying, whoever dies with the most toys still dies, you know? We don't see U-Hauls on the back of hearses, it's been said. We chase after the things that are temporary. And in all of that busyness, not that having things is bad, not that being involved in things is bad, it's not. But when we get so wrapped up in the busyness of life and Jesus Christ takes a back seat, when we're studying, you know, when, when our devotions are relegated to the one minute Bible, you ever seen that? I don't know if they still print it, but for a long time you had the one minute Bible. Wow. Okay. We've got the one hour Oprah Winfrey show. We've got the one hour Dr. Phil. We got the whatever, but a one minute Bible. We've got some serious time issues. And we get so anxious because we're not sitting at the feet of our Savior like Mary did. We're being like Martha, running around. I got to do, got to do, got to do. Paul's saying, don't do that. Live a restful life. Don't get caught up in the hustle and bustle. Mind your own affairs. Mind your own business. Okay, don't be meddling in other people's lives. Don't be sticking your nose where it doesn't need to be. Now, it's not meaning that we don't look out for each other and correct each other and build each other up. We do. But you know people in your life, probably, who stick their nose in your business and they got opinions and they're trying to make things happen or whatever. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be a busybody. This is going to come up again. And to work with your hands. The Greeks thought that manual labor was beneath them. That's why you had such a gigantic slave population. The Roman Empire was no different. So if you're a Roman citizen, you did politics, you did the arts, you lived your life, you did what you wanted to do. The slaves did the manual labor. When Paul says that he and those with him were examples, when they went to Thessalonica, they worked. They did tent making and they were not a burden to the church. And Paul says, look, get in there, do an honest day's work for an honest day's wage, live a quiet, simple life, 
And you're going to be an example to the people around you. People want to have rest, but they don't see it in the culture that we live in today. It's craziness. So Paul says, do these things. And then he addresses an issue on the coming of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So across the street, there's a cemetery, right? Does anybody know what cemetery means? Okay, it's a dormitory. The word means the sleeping place. Because the saints go and they just rest. Okay, and it's not soul sleep. The Bible does not teach that. But it's this idea and anticipation that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. Okay, they will be resurrected. That's what Mary and Martha were talking about when they were uh, talking to Jesus about Lazarus. So these people were waiting for the coming of Christ, but some of the folks were dying. And they're like, oh man, Grandpa Joe, he just passed away. He's missing out on Jesus' coming. Oh man, and they were getting discouraged because they didn't understand. Remember, Paul comes in and he's teaching them, but then boom, he's gone. And so they've got some questions. They're like, okay, we're waiting. We're anxious for Jesus to come back and we want to live accordingly, but some of our members are, are dying. And so Paul reaches out to their hearts and he tells them, don't, don't worry about this, okay? For this we declare to you, verse 15, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, some people say the Bible does not contain the word rapture, okay? Well, if you read Latin, okay, it does contain the word rapture because the word caught up here in Latin is raptura, okay, where we get our word rapture. So what Paul is saying is, look, when Jesus comes for his church, those who are in the graves, they will be risen first, and then we will be raptured, taken up, caught up in the air, and meet the Lord, and we will be with him always. So don't lose heart. Encourage each other with these words. We're all going home. And those who have died before us, they will precede us in going to the Father in meeting Jesus. And then he talks about the day of the Lord. And when we speak of the day of the Lord, it's talking about the second coming of Christ, okay? And we'll see this in a minute in 2 Thessalonians. And he's saying, look, you know that the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. When people are saying peace and safety, boom, 
Jesus is coming back. It's like Jesus likened it to the time of Noah. And people were marrying and drinking and having their life and everything. And bam, even after Noah was building the ark and proclaiming the coming of, of uh, the flood and Enoch had been prophesying about the judgment of God and Methuselah was talking about the judgment of God. They didn't listen. And then bam, the rains came and the judgment of God upon the earth hit. So that's the way it's going to be in this, this time when Jesus returns. People are going to be doing what they do, and bam. But he says, you know this. And in verse 6, he says, So then, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, alert, having our minds tuned in, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So Paul's saying, look, when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be a shock to the world, but you know he's coming. So it's not a shock to you. Be ready to see the Lord. Okay. Now, I used to believe in what's called a, a post-tribulation rapture. Okay. The reason for that is it's because Christians have dealt with tribulation since the beginning. We see that here. And a lot of my favored uh, writers and pastors were from Europe. And you have people like Bonhoeffer and Corey Temboom and Brother Andrew and others who went through major persecution. And so there's the thought that, hey, the church has already always gone through persecution. And so we will be raptured at the end of the tribulation. But Paul says here, we are not destined for wrath. And the thing about it is, the great tribulation is not persecution from man to the church, okay? It is tribulation as God is pouring out his judgment upon the earth, okay? And when you look at when God pours out wrath upon a people, be it Back in Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah, he gets his people out. Noah, Lot, Lot's family, the church, he gets them out. So I have changed the way I've understood things because we don't see in Scripture where God unleashes his wrath upon his own people. Okay? It's upon the earth and upon the enemies of God, but not his own. So Paul's saying, we're not destined for this, the wrath of God. We will be taken out and removed. And so that's where I stand on it. And frankly, when you look at scripture and it's constantly talking about, look, you need to be ready. Jesus is going to come back at any time. If you're basing it on a mid-tribulation or post-tribulation and you're seeing the Antichrist and all that, you know when Jesus is coming, ballpark. 
But when you're expecting Christ to return at any moment, you're living with this urgency of, I need to be ready to see my Savior. And even if we're not raptured, you may die today. You know, what I'm doing now for work, I work with retirement funds and stuff, and I'll get phone calls every week. And the person's saying, I need to let you know that my spouse passed away. Sometimes you're looking and they're in their 80s and you're like, okay. But then you get calls where they're in their 50s. Totally just surprised. We don't know when we're going to stand before the Lord. So we need to be constantly ready. So a final instruction is given, chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Okay, remember, just like the Jews, these folks were losing jobs and income and homes and everything they had for the sake of Christ. And so the church was taking care of them. They had everything in common and they were taking care of one another. But you have people, again, because of the Greek mindset, I don't need to work. And so they were taking advantage of the goodness of the body and they were just being idle, coming for the daily meals and all of that, but they weren't doing anything really. And so admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak and be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. The parting words. Okay. Now, 2 Thessalonians, this follows up just a few months later because there's still questions and issues. Some things need to get resolved. So chapter 1, verse 3, Paul's opening. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right because of your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I mentioned Alexander McLaren. He made a comment concerning the church of Thessalonica. With all of the garbage that they were facing, they were getting stronger they were loving more. Greater things were happening to where people were hearing. It's like that church in Thessalonica, boy, they are solid. They are so cool. They are so loving. They are so gracious. They were, they were known for good things. And McLaren talks about tribulation. And he says, we have a choice. They can become walls that will 
separate us from God or they can be walls that we can climb upon or ladders that we can climb upon to reach higher levels with our Lord. And it's like anything we do, if we push ourselves and we tackle the next challenge, be it at work or in sports or academics or whatever, and we keep pushing for the higher challenge and keep climbing, we get stronger, we get better. And so it is with persecution. If we allow it or tribulation, the hardships of life, we can take every one of those challenges that come into our life and use them as a rung to climb higher in our relationship with the Lord. And I think McLaren hit it on the head, and that's the way the Thessalonians lived. But now, there's still some stuff going on with the tribulation and all, and Paul's telling them that those who, who are persecuting you, God will deal with. Verse 5, and this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may, may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. I'll stop there, okay? You don't suffer to become worthy. That's not how this is worded, all right? The meaning is that your suffering in tribulation and standing in tribulation shows, it reveals the worthiness that you already have, okay? It shows what's already present, all right? That you are walking with the Lord, that you are close with the Lord, okay? Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory and might. Okay, so be encouraged. Jesus is going to deal with this one day. When he comes back, he'll take care of it. But when is the day coming? Chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay? So he's saying, don't worry about this. People are telling you a lie that Christ has already come. He hasn't come. First, you're going to see the Antichrist. Then Jesus will come back. All right? So he goes on, chapter 3. Verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Verse 
10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So even after the admonishing of of, uh, the first letter and saying, hey, when people aren't pulling their weight and they're taking advantage of the goodness and the resources of the church and being idle and being busybodies, if they're not listening and doing what they need to do you need to say you know what you're not going to eat you need to go and get a job and if they're causing issues and stuff you push them you don't push them away but you distance yourself from them okay church discipline this is something that lacks today we live in a time where people want to maintain numbers they want to maintain uh, giving They don't want to rustle feathers. They don't want to offend. And so we live in a time where the church does not call out sin. We let it sit. And when that happens, it pollutes the body of Christ. And we see this in Corinth, especially. Now these folks, they're idle, they're busy bodies. They're just being disruptive. And Paul says, look, don't treat them as an enemy, but push them aside, you know, distance yourself from them. And then when they get back on the right track, bring them back in. Okay, that's the purpose of church discipline, to correct and to bring back. Because sin pollutes. And Jesus talked about the leaven. The church is like a woman who had three loaves of bread and leaven was put in each one and it permeated everything. Leaven is a picture of sin. The church is like a mustard seed that grew big, Jesus said, and the birds of the air filled its branches. Birds are a symbol of sin. The tares and the wheat, the church has the sinful and the rebellious in the midst of it, and they look just like everybody else. We have to deal with sin. And we see that in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. Understand this. Corinth would make Amsterdam, New York, San Francisco, L.A., Las Vegas blush. Okay? The immorality of Corinth was so bad that there was a phrase or a term that was used. And if somebody who was a pleasure seeker, a hedonist, and a narcissist you were called a Corinthian. That's how bad the morality was in Corinth. Anything went and it did. And it was glorified. It was magnified. It was justified. It was just a part of life. So Paul says to this church, okay, and this church has all the gifts moving them. This church is also proud. This church does not know its word. This church had Paul there for a year and a half. 
This church is self-centered and it is way off track. Okay, they're not suffering the kind of persecution that, that Thessalonica was. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. And then we go into that famous section where you're saying you're of Apollos and you're of Peter and you're of Jesus and you're of Paul. And at this time, Apollos had been in Ephesus. He goes to Corinth. Paul is now in Ephesus and the people who are in Corinth are divisive about who they follow. Well, you know, I think Paul's the best preacher. Well, I think Apollos is. Well, I follow Jesus. You know, and it's just like this mess as everybody's, I'm better because of who I follow. And Paul's like, you know, you need to follow Jesus. So there's this division that's happening here. And Paul even talks about, he says, look, you know, I don't even recall that I baptized any of you except a couple of people. But in chapter three, he says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you're all still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human ways? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not bearing merely human? When we get caught up in a denominationalism and stuff, we're just being carnal. I'm better than you because I go to church so-and-so. Well, I'm better. Our church is this. And I've been guilty of that. I grew up in churches where I was starving spiritually. I was not learning the word. And then I went to a church where I was learning the word and I was growing. And for me, it was like, this is the only church, okay? This is it because I've never had anything other than that was like this. Well, it wasn't the case, but I got cocky. My church is the best. My church does it right? Well, you know what? It wasn't the only one. And my church had problems too. But we get arrogant. At first we're blessed and we're encouraged, but then pride can set in. And that's what was happening here. He says, you guys are babies. A year and a half he was with them. You're babies. Three months he's with the Thessalonians. Man, you guys are tough. You got it. Very, very different. If you go to chapter 4, verse 18, some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of the arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. A lot of talk, but not growth and not maturity. 
this arrogance even went to the point where immorality was accepted into the church. Chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, listen, and of a kind that is not tolerated amongst the pagans. Remember, he's in Corinth. They're talking to Corinth, okay? Anything went in Corinth, but not what's going on in the church, okay? For a man has his father's wife. He's having sex with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Church discipline. You are to deliver this man to Satan, verse 5, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. We live in a time where the church boasts of sin and immorality as we embrace the sins of the world and we tolerate the homosexual agenda. We tolerate living together, all this stuff. And we don't want to say anything because we don't want to offend. We don't want to be considered being homophobic. We don't want to have people leave the church. We're really concerned about what people think of us and keeping things just kind of cool within the church. So, hey, you know, we're a tolerant church. We love everybody. We accept everybody. Come as you are. We are supposed to come together as you are. We are supposed to love everybody. Jesus did that, but he never left people where they were. The sinners came to him as droves, but they didn't stay sinners. They repented and they walked with the Lord and they became disciples. But the church in America doesn't do that. We cave to political correctness and the morality of our days. And we boast about it. We're a progressive church. Yeah, but what are you progressing to? It's not Christ. It's not discipleship. It's not the word of God. I wrote you in my letter, verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging the outsiders, the world? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's tough stuff. But sin poisons the church. Sin breeds sin. And it needs to be dealt with. Jesus talks about how to deal with it. You go to the elders of the church. You know, if, if you go in private and they're not going to repent, then you take a couple of people with you who are familiar with it. And if they're not repenting, you go to the elders and it goes to the church. Not to hurt them, but to bring them to the place of repentance so that you can bring them back in. Second Corinthians, Paul has to write to them and say, look, the guy repented, okay? Bring him back into fellowship, love on him, encourage him, build him up, strengthen him, okay? The discipline has served its purpose. 
Let's get him back in the midst of our fellowship. Chapter 6, there's lawsuits. Christians suing Christians. Paul's like, you know what? As believers, we're going to judge angels. Can't you figure this stuff out amongst yourselves? What are you doing? The world's looking at this. It was, an, it was just an embarrassment to the name of Christ as the church was tearing itself apart. Chapter 8, the issues of freedom concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know what he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And he says, look, not everybody understands that the idols are not idols. They're just fake. They're demons. They're not real gods. And don't use your freedom to eat meat because you know they're not real and you're not worshiping those gods. There's people who came out of that and it really messes with them. So forget about your rights. Think of your brother and sister in the Lord and don't do something that's going to make them stumble. That's what Paul did. Paul said, I'm free. I can do a lot of things, but I don't because I want to build up my brethren. He wraps it up with this thought in chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful. And he's talking about dietary and all. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of God. That's heavy duty. We live in a self-centered society. And we have a self-centered church. What can the church offer me? What can you give me? We don't really serve each other. That's the whole purpose of the gifts is to build each other up. But the Corinthians were taking them to say, I have this gift and I'm better than you. Well, I have this one and I'm better than you. And I don't need you and I don't need you. So the very things that were meant to build up the body were dividing the body. Issues of head coverings. This is an authority issue. There's freedom in Christ. Jesus built up women. He liberated women, so to speak, and that they were a part of his ministry. And there's equality between women and God. That was not the way that people thought back then. Women were just property, but not in God's economy. And so he's talking about the women having their heads covered when they're prophesying or praying in church. Because God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, and the husband is the head of his wife. It's a chain of command. In a world where anything goes, show that there's this structure of order within the church of God and within the family. Because when a woman would go into the church and go, well, hey, I'm not under all these rules and regulations anymore. I don't have to do this. In that culture, if a woman had her head uncovered, 
She was rebellious. She was a loose woman. She was a prostitute in one of the temples. So Gal goes into church with her head uncovered and anybody looking is like, they've got prostitution going on in the church over there, just like they do in the temple of Aphrodite. What's up with that? Whoa. And it says, have your head covered for the sake of the angels, the messengers, the people that were coming into the church, serving the Lord and bringing messages from elsewhere. And they're coming into this crazy decadent society. And there's women who look like they're in prostitution or rebellious. And they're going, whoa, whoa, what, what's this? No. If you're going to be in the church, Greeks and Jews both, women had their heads covered if they were women of dignity and honor, okay? So it's like, you need to keep that up. They were getting drunk for the Lord's Supper. They were bringing in their food and everything. They were having these big feasts, but the people who were poor were getting nothing. And they were desecrating the Lord's Supper. And Paul's like, you know what? You got to stop this. If you're hungry and all, eat at home and then come and fellowship and celebrate the Lord. But don't be doing this partying stuff and everything and getting drunk. And then verse 12, 13, talking about the spiritual gifts. I'll just refer to these real quick. They're to build up the body. And they're for today, okay? They didn't end. People will use chapter 13 to say, oh, there's no more tongues. There's no more uh, prophecy. Why don't they say there's no more knowledge? I don't know. But anybody who says that's a proof text that the gifts are not for today anymore is wrong. R.C. Sproul really hit it on the head. It's like, yeah, we go to this and I don't believe they're for today, but we can't use that scripture to say that they're not for today. There's no biblical precedence to say they're not for today. But there's this pushing them away because there's been so much divisiveness. Everything's supposed to be done decently in order. It's tying back to the women with their heads covered and the men under Christ and Christ under God. And there's this passage here in chapter 14 where it talks about women aren't supposed to speak in the church. What's that talking about? Chapter 11, they're praying and prophesying. What's this talking about? It's talking about during the church service, there's this structure and this order. And when it says women are to keep silent, okay, it's Paul's already talked about, look, if you've got a prophecy and somebody's prophesying, you keep silent. You wait your turn. Order. If you have a tongue and you feel that you're supposed to speak it, but you know that there's not an interpreter, you keep silent, okay? Ladies, wives is what it's talking about because they're supposed to talk to their husbands. Keep silent in the church. Don't speak. That word for speak is to argue, debate, and to chatter. Don't just go, well, I disagree with that. I don't like that. Hey, you know what? Let the elders deal with this stuff, okay? Talk to your husband about this. The church was split. Women on one side, men on the other. Women, don't be sitting on your side going, you know, 
It's disruptive to the body. Don't do that. Everybody is supposed to act in a way that is going to be conducive to the building up of the body. Okay? And he finishes it up. If we go to chapter 16, verse 10, look at, look at how this is worded. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Okay? Quiet his heart. Don't let him be afraid. Okay, that's scary when you're sending somebody to a church and they're scared to go because of the attitude of that church. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. Oh my word, that's horrible. Don't despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. And then look at this, verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come visit you with the other brothers, but he was, it was not at all his will to come now. Apollos is like, I ain't going. My being there has caused so much division and everything, I'm not going there. We'll deal with it later. And he wraps up, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. This was an unloving church. So much that it's like, don't chew up Timothy and spit him out. Apollos doesn't want to come back to you all right now because of everything going on. Gang, this is what happens when we compromise. This is what happens when we don't deal with sin. This is what happens when we're selfish. We don't know the Bible. Unfortunately, Corinth really is a good illustration of the church in America today. May it not be so. Let us love one another, build each other up, serve each other, take care of each other. And when we see a brother or sister in sin, address it privately, and then hopefully we won't have to escalate that. If somebody calls us on the carpet for sin, in humility, we need to receive that correction because it's good for us. A tale of two churches, very different stories.